Hi folks, Todd here with a quick correction. In our last commentary episode, I stated that Ms. Joan Jett Black was the first trans woman to run for president. That was an error on my part. Joan Jett Black was the first drag queen to run for president back in 1992 and is the drag persona of Terrence Allen Smith. She also ran for mayor of Chicago in 1991 and made another presidential bid in 1996 on the Queer Nation Party ticket. With that out of the way, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. I'm Nick here with Percy. Hello. And contributors Ben Ferber. Hi. And Corey Flores. Hello. We're here today to talk about what it means to be setting agnostic in a game and how that relates to the art of adaptation, whether in the theater or otherwise. Perhaps in Thirsty Sword Lesbians. Hmm. So before we dive in, uh, we just wanted to establish what are we talking about when we talk about setting. Some of the elements of setting, uh, which you probably learned in like high school, are time period. Is this set in the past? Is it set in the present? Is it set in a speculative future? Uh, as well as the geographical location, which includes things like the environment, the time of day, the country or state or city that it is set in, uh, all of that sort of thing. Basically, just think about when you were in your first like, writing class, how would you, where would you place your story? Like you need context for the events that are about to happen. It's the same when we talk about setting here. And setting might also include things that are less tangible, like social class, gender, the sexuality or race of the characters and how that affects the world around them or is affected by the world around them. And whether you have fantasy or sci-fi elements, if this is a world with magic and or laser guns, that's a very different setting than a world without magic and or laser guns to solve your problems. And you can have those things in different time periods, different geographies, different, you know, kind of anything, because, you know, you can have like a sword and sorcery in the far past. You can have like a shadow run with magic in the speculative future. You could have like a contemporary thing where there's like wizard, like the Wizards of Waverly Place, which is, I'm certain does have a TTRPG. <laughs> if it doesn't, it should. I, I kind of, I don't know if there's a name for this setting, but I also now kind of want to play a game that's like, uh, li like I want to play Paleolithic characters with laser guns. I don't necessarily want an explanation for that. I just want it to happen. I think the closest you're going to find is like Visigoths versus Malgoths, which I promised to run for you and never did. <laughs> <laughs> you could probably do Numenera with that. Mm -hmm. You probably could do Numenera. Anyway, um, the other anyway. I think important piece of setting to consider um and this is like something that we'll touch on a fair amount uh later um by uh what context are the characters in are there real historical or mythical figures that everybody at the table would recognize or maybe know something about that are present in the story um are there sort of other narratives of like real figures that existed in story or in history uh that we're playing off of or are they totally fabricated or do you have allegorical characters for those like obvious real world parallels or myth parallels? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And super important if, for example, you're playing the recently released uh, Bible setting for fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. Are you fucking serious? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, this is a real thing. It wasn't released by Wizards of the Coast. It's not it, it's yes. not like official, but it is a real thing. You Is can this like purchase. the church play cinematic universe of TTRPGs? It's this the sight cursed. and sound theaters of D&D &D 5th edition. Fuck. Brought to you by the same people that did the new Hamlet 
Uh, Ham- Hamilton. I love Hamilton. Hamilton. It's basically Hamilton. Honestly, probably, 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 there's some kinship with uh, Texas Christian Hamilton and yeah. the Five Bible Supplement. I feel like they're probably like sister sister, you know. Wait, Nick, I'm so sorry. So what is, what's Jesus's class? Does he have laser guns? Jesus doesn't have a class, but there is a very funny sidebar I saw somebody share on Twitter where it was like, from the perspective of the writers of the book, they were like, you know, obviously, like, Jesus is going to die. If, but if your players want to save Jesus, I guess let them. On the other (laughs) hand, if they want to kill Jesus... I guess also maybe let them question mark like it was very That's a it was lot a, of conflict for your players. Was, I was going to say it was a very like conflicted internally <laughs> feeling sidebar. Does Jesus have this special skill just like instead of like finger guns or anything just 50 fish instantly like is that just a <laughs> random I would like to just spew fish at people. And loaves of bread instead of actual traditional weapons. And this yeah. would be like the make water spell in D&D, which like, you know, is you're just yeah. supposed to be able to make like some fucking water to drink. But then like in reality, people are like, OK, I make a cube of water above them to like surprise them and get a like yeah. <laughs> jump on the rat. And it's like, this is not what this is for. But biblical right. water. Balloons. Can I make a fish in his throat? <laughs> um, Griffin McElroy turning into a gaseous form and getting a minotaur to vape him into his lungs and then turning into a <laughs> war horse. <laughs> Wait, I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, anyway, we've we've gone on a tangent. Circling back to, to setting, uh, if we're thinking about examples of settings that are sort of in the past or evocative of the past, um, we can think about Shakespeare's plays in their day when they were originally performed. Um, most of them uh, were based on way older stories like Greek myths and things like that. And like um, Hamlet, which is based on like a, you know, myth from up north uh, about like some actual royal shit that happened, you know, a couple hundred years before it was mm-hmm. turned into Shakespeare's version of it. And the setting of these plays was sort of very much informed by the fact that they were sort of blatant royalist propaganda, um, although his later plays moved away from this slightly. Like there is very a very clear relationship between the writer and the court that influenced the content of the plays. And for some of going back to like myths and things, they were just explanations for phenomena that we didn't really like have concrete answers to. So it was just like, why do things happen? Let me tell you, there is this guy person that tells me this happens and they slept with a goose and then you had a girl and voila, this is how the story was made. And it's like, yeah, all right, I'll take that. That makes sense. Checks out. And I feel like in a lot of Shakespeare's plays, like also, you know, even if they're like very historical, like Macbeth, which is like part of like British history, they still have sort of a like propaganda bit to them where like the surviving characters in Macbeth, like those become like the quote unquote good royals who then like become the line that is the people paying him to make this show. So like there is, there are these characters that we sympathize with who are, who happen to be the current ruling class. Um, So like, even though this is a historical thing, it is, influenced by the time that it was written and the people it was written by and commissioned by. You know, I think one of the things about Shakespeare's settings particularly are even though there may have been sort of gestures at historicity in as far as like a a 17th century audience of, you know, mostly commoners and very few historians who would measure up to current (laughs) like 
scholarly standards <laughs> understood historicity, the the behavior of the people and the sort of social relations are all through an Elizabethan lens, right? Like the the plays are functionally set in maybe set in is too strong a word, but they're understood to be about people just like all the Englishmen on stage, even if like some of them maybe wore togas. And even then it would only have been the like leading characters because the King's men weren't going to pay for togas for all the people that they were paying pennies a day to like stand on stage with spears because that's just not cost effective and nobody cared. Right. And so then you get people in these plays wearing contemporary clothes that still do have to sort of tell you who they are. Like, this is a guard, this is a noble, this is, et cetera, et cetera. And so you get that in that day's context. Context and then suspension of disbelief. Like, obviously, with the costumes and things, you're just going to have to trust what the actors portray and trust what they're setting the stage for. Even if it's someone that rolled off the street and is like, yeah, I'm a war hero. You're like, all right, mm -hmm. cool, sick. In your Crocs. <laughs> 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 10 out of 10 Crocs. Sport mode, war hero, done. Fight me on it. I won't. I won't. I agree. Good. Um, but yeah, just talking about like when we were going off of Hamlet, a really interesting translation of Hamlet, Lion King. Like for me personally, that is not something that I would have come up with. So I think it's really like fascinating how they channeled the same story in a context that like, okay, there's no, like a lot of it was communicated in Hamlet like this was poison, this person was stabbed, and they made it a very natural concept and still had like these political ties. You had like these bright golden lions. You had this evil dark side lion. You had hyenas communicated as an opposing force. Like I thought it was really cool. So for me personally, I think Lion King is a great example of like how you can communicate the same thing, but I, I like really that you like put it in the thing. present section because it like sort of is, right? It's like mm -hmm. our understanding of like, the wild, the savannah. There's literally lions right now, so I feel like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In case famously, you didn't know. Famously in 2022, there are lions. For the moment. For the moment. I mean, I guess there's no, like, Oof. desertification in The Lion King, but there's also, like, for, for things set in the present, there are things like, for example, West Side Story, which was set in its own present as a adaptation of a Shakespeare story, which was sort of set in that present and sort of set in also the past of like fucking Italy. And then, you know, you do West Side Story now and well, okay, do you do it in the time that it was written or do you do it now? And I mean, the movie and Broadway show from a couple of years ago, like made different decisions on that and said different things by setting it like both in like the 1950s versus the, like, you know, 2020s or 2010s. And what's interesting about that is that's such a, a, an interpretive choice because, and I didn't see, I haven't seen either of those actually, but you know, it's, I, I did they get permission to change the script? I didn't, uh, I didn't see that Broadway one either because there was a lot of, uh, I, you know, I did, I didn't think I would like it, uh, uh -huh. because of a certain director who, mm -hmm. uh, makes dog shit choices. But going on West Side Story, I think one of the reasons that the like Romeo and Juliet concept or like the actual, generalization of the play the themes in the play they are so versatile that you can kind of move them all around the benefit of putting it in like a 1950s setting is you can introduce more heavy topics like there was a lot of racism in there there was a lot of classism involved and that's something that 
was kind of touched on, but not really as much in like the traditional Romeo and Juliet play. It was just like, oh no, I can't have that rich person. Then I have to have this one. All right, boo-hoo, go cry. And gentrification. It was talking about the gentrification of the neighborhood that became a place that then performed it. (laughs) That too. But like, there's a lot of options if you move it into certain time periods or you depict the different houses as something besides houses, like groups, companies, families, tribes, um, different ethnicities. Like there's a lot of different things you can touch base on that make it a really good starting point for a story. One other example of settings that take place in the present that springs to mind for me thinking about like our actual present right now. And this is me putting my snarky literary manager hat on for a little bit, which is that like people who are writing plays that are set right now have to make a very uncomfortable choice about like, to what extent am I acknowledging the actual given circumstances of 2020 to 2022 as like a period of time in which to set a play? Because you have to decide, am I setting like, is everyone inside during a pandemic and I'm going to write like a living room drama about that? Or do I not acknowledge that? But I also think a lot of people are writing plays that are set in other settings as opposed to writing plays that are contemporary set right now, perhaps for that reason. But I think that's like an interesting thing to think about if we're thinking about setting and what different settings mean in this particular moment. Well, I feel like especially the way the world works these days, it's interesting to think about the way and any play that is set currently is functionally set in the immediate past mm-hmm. because yeah. like there like there's always going to be a gap between when the text is fixed even if it changes for every performance and the actual moment of performance so yeah like how do, how do you account for that i've also ranted about this on this same podcast but it's like the humans right like the humans was set ostensibly in like the recent past but also like they put it in a basement so they didn't have to have fucking phone calls like and like texting because they're like didn't what the player didn't want to deal with it and it's like why not just do it it's a thing um and then thinking about um future setting things in a future um or a more accurately a speculative future because we do not know what will happen in the future that also sort of brings up a question of like what does that speculation say about first of all the people making that speculation but also about how it can usually just be available for contemporary issues. So you think of things like Star Trek where like, you know, I mean, particularly in the original series, like you can think of the episode where like there's like the aliens with like the half black, half white faces and there's like racism against which side the black and the white are on. It's like, that's obviously fucking a very, very obvious allegory for, you know, the racism of the 1960s when this thing was made. Um, And, you know, the oppression based on that. Was it clumsy? Absolutely it was. But at the same time, this is this far future thing that is not about just the far future. And this is throughout Star Trek, throughout science fiction, throughout any sort of future thing, a thing. And then we think about, you know, just thinking about uh, there's a game on a show that you might listen to called Dungeons and Drama Nerds, um, which does take place in a speculative future. Um, And it's a game of a game you might have heard of called Thirsty Sword Lesbians. (laughs) And they're doing, um, I I mean, I would call it solar punk from what Mm -hmm. I from what I've heard so far. I agree. As a person playing it, I would agree that it is a solar punk story. And sort of a question that I, or a thought that I have is like, you could set that same kind of story, like a thing in the solar punk genre in the present. Like there are literally stories that can be told with in the present. For example, like what if you did a story in lithium mines in Bolivia and Elon Musk and Janine Añez were characters? Like this is a thing that like 
is directly related to contemporary environmentalism and the destruction of our own planet and the ways that we might revolt against that or change that. But a speculative future has the ability to like, A, be free from very precise specifics of a situation like that. And so it can focus more on themes and ideas, and then it can dramatize other similar events and blend other similar stories into its own story. So you get sort of more of a broad genre about the same ideas of like, how are we destroying our planet? How are things getting really bad? Like, how do we make it better? And also you have agency to do so. Yeah, there's a there's a literary critic theorist person named Darko Suvin, who is like a science fiction theorist who writes about this concept called cognitive estrangement, which is basically what happens when we read what he calls like a factual reporting of fiction, which I think is like exactly what this is, which is basically there, there is something uniquely powerful about taking something that is not real and reporting it as if it is real because it makes us take it, take it seriously in a way that allows us to open up those like connections to things that are happening in our real lives. Like no spoilers, our Thirsty Sword of Lesbians game digs into a lot of questions that are really relevant to like the lives that we're living now, especially in like a climate crisis and how people are reacting to that when we live in a world that has capitalism in it. Yeah, speculative futures are really particularly useful for like giving us another route to think about things that does not feel direct and tangibly real. And it can move into things that haven't happened, like having some sort of solution to climate change or mm -hmm. <laughs> solutions to part of it. Like, because we currently don't have any to any of it. <laughs> so, well, we do have some, but we're not doing all of it. We're not doing anything about it. Exactly. Yeah. So like, what if they were done is like a thing that you can do in that kind of story. And that is yeah. necessarily the future and not the present. Some of the questions that I think this brings up that are interesting is like, what goal does the use of a setting achieve artistically? Like, why, why does it matter if I want to say, write a romance? Why does it matter whether it's in the West in the in the 19th century or the far distant future on a lunar colony. And what what does it achieve in a broader social context um, of, you know, my work entering the world? Like, why, why should I care? I guess is like part of this question. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the one thing for me is if you're using a like factual setting, like using something from the past, you have a lot of social cues and norms that you can use to reference. Which kind of, especially for someone that might be starting from scratch or just learning how to get master on their own, that's a really good, helpful way for like building their worlds. Like it's a good way to get started, especially if you like have no idea what you're doing. Me, um, <laughs> <laughs> as the resident idiot on this episode, um, yeah, it's a big challenge as well because it's a lot of research. Like if you are doing something based on truth, but it's also like. Um, the advantage of going into into the unknown um, <laughs> <laughs> is you can explore a lot more possibilities. So even just taking like climate change where you can see what would happen if we did this, this and this. OK, if people are allowed to do these certain actions without uh, consequence, how does that affect how they build relationships? I feel like you can explore a lot more of the nature of the characters that you want in your game. Yeah, I think I think it's it becomes a choice between how much do you want to have to worry about like fidelity to the rules of a setting or historical truth or what have you versus how much freedom, but also how much responsibility do you want to have for coming up with things on your own? Like, I think that's the the thing that you have to decide between. 
It strikes me that there's an element of responsibility in historical settings, too, of like, you know, if you are if you are writing a romance set in the 19th century West, you like must grapple with the displacement of Native people and anti-Black racism because those were such a deeply baked in part of American expansionism in the West. And you maybe get to not have to worry about that as much in a, you know, speculative future setting, although I would also say that many speculative future settings like recreate those problems often unintentionally but like and perhaps be very pro those problems yes <laughs> unfortunately a lot of those kinds of conflicts just seem to be consistent in every part of history so they tend to be recreated no matter where you go which sucks but keeping these sort of questions in mind because i think these are these are sort of our like core questions that we'll revisit throughout um i want to pivot us to this sort of very opposite, like we've just spent a lot of time talking about why settings are important and what they do for the telling of a story. Um, but there are there is a whole genre of games that market themselves as quote unquote setting agnostic, um, meaning that they're sort of separating out the setting of a game and how that impacts its story content from the system that you use to play a game. Uh, so we want to talk a little bit about how you support being setting agnostic mechanically uh, how much of the work then falls on the players and the GM of a particular group to actually like decide what the setting is and fill in all of the blanks left by a setting agnostic system and figuring out how all of the mechanics apply and like what does function in a setting agnostic game to make it feel like the same game across different playthroughs. I wonder if there's a distinction to be drawn between like setting agnostic games which Thirsty Sword Lesbians, for example, bills itself as setting agnostic, and universal systems, mm -hmm. which are also setting agnostic, but maybe are making even bigger claims than that. They are trying to have no setting in a way, in some cases, yes. Yeah. Because I guess, there, yeah, there's the setting agnostic of, you can put this in any setting, and there's the universal, which is like any setting can happen simultaneously. And then there's also there are games like not to um not to plug my favorite game Still Fleet which is coming out soon but like that game is going to have the Still Fleet system which is going to use the same rules but you have to rewrite the whole fucking game every time so like you write a game in a different setting with the same rules which is sort of how powered by the apocalypse and systems like that work where like well there are all these games with settings but they use this other game as a basis but they get to rewrite their rules to be specific to their own setting yeah, which I feel like gets around the the question of like, because I think the reason people are gravitating towards universal systems or setting agnostic games is that they want to be free to make choices that their gaming group is interested in. And they don't want to have to learn a new game every single time they want to play in a different setting. But like, but you should. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But no, if you play if you played one powered by the apocalypse game, you've kind of played them all. So you could at least you, like you can learn the differences pretty easily as opposed to learning a whole new system. Um on the other hand, I still do got to read a book. Which, which who who wants to do that? Um, I have to read like 30 whole pages. <sighs> In addition to the distinction between universal systems and setting agnostic games, there's also a distinction to be drawn between like setting and genre agnostic, because I think like Thirsty Sword Lesbians may not may work in multiple settings, but definitely has the same genre every time. Although that also yeah. depends on how you're defining genre, but. Well, I think I think the most useful way to define genres structurally in terms of like 
plot and story structure. And I think that's I, I think that's one place that this tension comes from is that we tend to like in casual conversation, we tend to use genre to refer to setting. But actually, like I'm stealing this example from Neil Gaiman, but just to go back to the Western romance, like if you write you, you can write two books set in the 19th century American West and have one of them be a Western and one of them be a like cowboy romance novel. And those are like totally different genres. They're not both Westerns. They just both happen to be set in the same time and place. And I think that's why I personally would say like Thirsty Sword Lesbian, Thirsty Sword Lesbians can have many uh, settings, but maybe really only one genre. Like it's always going to be kind of action adventure romance with some punk suffix thing because of the like fight the power that's built in i think for me looking at genre the way that like you can tell whether something is genre specific or like what the universal theme is to hold on to that you have to stay true to in um is looking at the character objectives and like even the language that uh, is set for the gameplay like what is it objectives? What are the characters called? Like, just little things like that can determine what you're working with. Because especially with Thirsty Sword Lesbians, there's so much romantic language mixed into character building, world building for it, that it is very much a romantic action, in my opinion. But again, that just comes from the terminology that's introduced to build Thirsty Sword Lesbians. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, like, the function of genre as a structural tool is primarily so that in this case, all of the people playing understand this is what does and doesn't make sense in this world. I can make choices on the basis of like understanding what the character objectives are and what the characters are trying to do and what the characters are built around. So all of us are sort of making choices that belong in the same world and support each other as opposed to making a wild array of different choices that we have to then try to justify and reconcile. Exactly. I like to think about it. I don't remember if it's from Rick and Morty or from another animated show, but there's a little robot that's made just to pass the butter. Like that robot has a very consistent action mission, but you can put it anywhere, but it's going to mm-hmm. pass the butter. That's that exactly. sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And like, yeah, that's a great example. Um, <laughs> but just that's to. My purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Just to sort of, if you're not familiar with like setting agnostic game systems, I wanted to just read some uh, examples of how what I would argue are like the top three sort of universal quote unquote systems to borrow Nick's term, like how they market themselves. Um, The big three that I would identify are fate, uh, which claims that it is a quote flexible system that can support whatever worlds you dream up. And then it gives a variety of examples um, that are sort of genre blend e like it references the spaghetti western with tentacle monsters sword and sorcery in space which i would argue if you wanted to play that just play starfinder but that's whatever um but it's so that so this one is sort of um arguing it can accommodate any world with any blend of genre elements um the second one that i would identify is like one of the go-to universal game systems is GURPS, which is short for Generic Universal Role-Playing System, which claims, quote, with GURPS, you can be anyone you want, an elf hero fighting for the forces of good, a shadowy femme fatale on a deep cover mission, a futuristic swashbuckler carving up foes with a force sword in his hand and a beautiful woman by his side, or literally anything else. So this one is a lot more character-focused. Um, 
it's a lot more focused on being able to build a specific character that you want to play without being restricted by character classes and subclasses or playbook moves or things like that. Although I, they certainly, this was before playbook moves were a thing in TTRPGs, but you get my point. I mean, I think playbook moves are not dissimilar to like character features, feats, pa- like yeah, 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 characters yeah. still have like things that only they can do that it, they get through leveling and picking their character. Mm-hmm, totally. Spells. Um, the third like game system that I see recommended for people who want to only learn one system and then play a variety of games and different worlds in it um, is Savage Worlds, which claims, quote, it has everything you need to play narrative or miniature based games with quick, simple, yet comprehensive rules for everything from combat to dramatic tasks, chases and interludes. Um, and this one is its language is really focused on like lessening the amount of prep for the GM um, and focusing back on like receiving what the players are giving you and responding to it. Um, And it's focused on sort of the pace of story moving really fast, as opposed to getting bogged down in a lot of rules to resolve. And then there are other games um, that have sort of adapted to multiple specific settings um, with the same sort of core rule system. What I'm thinking of specifically um, is the core game Kids on Bikes, which adapts into Kids on Brooms, which is in like a wizard school setting, but still uses the same fundamental system, just changes out the tropes. Um, as well as I, th- I think they also made Teens in Space, which is not nearly as good of a title. <laughs> <laughs> what is that fucking ha- Captain Harlock? Like no kids on rockets? Kids, on, I don't know. Kids on buckets of bolts. Like it, it, it just feels so lazy to be like kids on bikes, kids on brooms, Teens in Space. I'm like, you didn't even try. Anyway, that's a <laughs> New enemy of the pod. Yes, Teens in Space. The Teens in Space. Um, Whoever made the game Teens in Space, please meet me in the Wendy's parking lot and we will punch each other. <laughs> we'll live stream it. Yeah, it's coming, uh, coming on Patreon in October. Um, but yeah, I guess my question, having taken in these three approaches to universal systems, like what is the appeal of this? Why, why are setting agnostic games or universal systems interesting to us as players? us in the royal sense not us specifically i think right now especially as gameplay has expanded like people are itching to try something new like there's just so much out there that it's this little renaissance of creative freedom in terms of this the D format and just gameplay in general us in the royal sense <laughs> get out of here um <laughs> get out but I think it's just, it's a very exciting time to be able to shape worlds. Like a lot of people see D&D as very traditional. You go into the castle, you kill the dragon, you get the gold. Fantastic. It's like, okay, but what if we did that as teens in space? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that's such a big thing that people have difficulty with is like people will, D&D is the most popular game. D&D is played by most people and they know how to play it. Like most people who play role-playing games know that system have read that fucking book. And so a lot of people and shows and other things use D&D to try to do other things. Like what if I did a D&D story, but we're in space? What if I did a D&D story and it's like Pirates of the Caribbean? What if I did a, like use D&D to be cyber? And it's like, no, it, D&D is not made for these things. It is very tied to the setting of D&D, which like, has evolved itself, but is still its own specific setting. And so it's like, what if I learned one other game that could do everything else that I wanted? And that's that is an appeal. It's it's an appeal, although I will say I haven't played Fate or GURPS or Savage Worlds, but like I think 
think it's a lie. Um, you know, I like, I just don't think when GURPS is like, you can play literally any character. I'm like, I, I doubt that. I don't know. Can I really, can I, can I really play a game in GURPS where my character is a rock that is contemplating birds? Like, no, but I bet there's some weird lyric indie game out there where I can have that experience. Like, you know, like these games make, I guess I'm moving into drawbacks of setting agnostic systems. I think that's okay. Wait, wait, but, but like, uh, these games are universal and setting agnostic, but they they must make decisions about like what kind of story you're telling. Because if they didn't, if you created a game system that was literally capable of doing anything imaginable, you would have cracked the like computer code of the actual universe. Well, the <laughs> only I would argue, and this is something Jay Dragon talks about a lot too, like mechanics embody the things that a game cares about. Yeah. Like mechanics, mechanics are the thing that tell you what the game is trying to do. So if you have a ton of rules about uh, mechanics, about character customization, that means that the game is about making a really nuanced and complex character. Like the only, I would argue the only game system, quote unquote, where you could literally do anything is like children's make believe with no formal rules. Like that's the, right. o- that's the only thing that where you literally could do whatever you wanted. Um, and you know, people are resistant to playing games that are super open for a variety of reasons. But part of it is that they like mechanics to tell them a little bit of what they're trying to do, um, which I think is fair. For example, in Thirsty's Red Lesbians, you are, it's swashbuckling romance. Whatever it is, that's what the game lets you do. The mechanics are also really important for making sure that the game continues to move forward. Because if you could literally do anything, I'm like, you could have the rock and then I'm going to take a nap on the rock for it. Three years. It's like, okay, well, we need to have events that happen. You're not just going to sit there the whole time. Like, there's got to be something that helps propel it forward. And you just like to help you be prepared because obviously with improv, like you have to be ready to kind of handle whatever your players are going to throw at you. But there has to be a surefire way to get things to the next level. Yeah. Like if you're in a group of people who all want to play rocks contemplating different animals and nap for several years and you're all having fun doing that, that's awesome. Um, I, I, I think this idea was lightly inspired in addition <laughs> by everything everywhere all at once. It it was also there is an indie game called uh, Moss Creep Stone Crumbles, and that's just a good in, in this game. And I'm working off memory, but like. It's basically like get a piece of paper and draw like 30 squares on it. And then you as a group of players decide like how long the interval of time between each square is going to be. And you take turns like drawing a scene from nature and like adjusting it each time. So it's not really like in some ways this isn't really a role playing game, quote unquote. But my point is just. Uh, you know, even the assumption of like there are human or human adjacent characters who are in conflict is that like that is that actually leads you to a very specific kind of story. It's a it's an exciting story. It's a dramatic story. It's the kind of story we like. Most people like to consume a lot of. But there is a like wide universe of possible creative expression that something like Savage Worlds just is not going to be able to dig into because it's not meant to do that it's not interested in doing that it doesn't want to do that and it doesn't want you to do that when you're playing it yeah absolutely just as D D doesn't want you to have a laser gun yeah (laughs) 
or mercy for your enemies. Um, <laughs> any, any excuse I get. Yes. <laughs> uh, we, we, we've been talking about games for a while, but we should also probably ta- talk a little bit about what, what it means to be setting agnostic or to explore this idea of adaptation in theater or in other creative media. Um, and one thing that I think is always always feels very clear to me when I'm looking at different works of theater or film or whatever is when something has sort of been quickly and shoddily adapted, which is usually looks like putting a story in a new setting without really thinking about what that might mean for it, as opposed to evaluating how a new setting would actually change the way that we think about the story. Uh, one of my professors, Catherine Sheehy, likes to talk about the cell phone problem of setting Shakespeare in a uh, contemporary, like a contemporary or pseudo contemporary setting, which is just like if people have easy communication in a mode that's not face to face, a lot of Shakespeare plays just don't work. It can't happen. You know, They've all got fucking messengers. Right, exactly. Like Romeo and Juliet don't die if they can text. Well, <laughs> they could have been in somewhere without reception. You have to be in a basement. Every everything exactly. happens Bas- in a basement. The basement always wins. Okay, but and what I if mean, instead of the balcony scene, they're sexting? <laughs> Honestly, I well, I I would be curious to see the adaptation that does that. I would not. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. We're doing it. <laughs> Tune in next time. For- okay. Coming to pitch that? myself Romeo. into jail. I'm like, what's up, Romeo? <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome for that. <laughs> It'll only cost you $5 for Patreon to experience what's up, Romeo. Please sign up. <laughs> but I think I, I think one of the like better ways to do this, and, and the the reason that, that people do that so often, I think, is because it's quick and easy, right? Or or it seems quick and easy, and then you just end up with something that doesn't make sense. But when you can take more time to do it and really think about it, uh, these can be quite effective. Like, for example, Peerless by Jihei Park, or uh, Teen Dick by Mike Liu. Like, these are adaptations of Shakespeare that have taken the time to not just say like, ah, we will costume this like it's in a high school, but have actually (laughs) written an original work that adapts a beloved piece of literature or a, at least an interesting piece of literature into a new setting and thinks about what does that actually mean for these characters? How and just do we like a capture... Powered by the Apocalypse game, they've basically rewritten a new thing with the same rules. Mm. Yeah, that's actually such a good way of thinking about it. And I also think a function of plays like those two plays in particular or um like I'm also thinking of an adaptation that I was in in college that was um, Glengarry Glen Ross, except it was high school seniors selling Girl Scout cookies and it was all women. What? The more words Wait. you said, the more I liked that. It's it's a great play. It's called Mary Beth Mary Roth. It's by Matt Fotis. He was a professor I had in undergrad. It was great. But um, all of them are sort of taking these plays that frequently have a lot of like people excluded from them or like the the people that you see in the play are a very specific group of people with a very specific set of identities. Um, and a lot of these plays are asking, like, what happens when you take these characters and put them in the context of people who are different than that? Um, what happens when we think about, particularly when we think about women in like in these very cutthroat stories, these very cutthroat male dominated settings? Um, 
we have two shows on Broadway, like one currently and one upcoming, which are like about the women behind Shakespeare's stories, right? Like there's NJ, which is like the Britney Spears, Romeo and Juliet. What if she didn't die? And then there's uh fucking um, six. Yeah. Which is like not Shakespeare specifically more histor- history, but like same idea of like, this is about the women in this historical thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it uses music to sort of empower them and all that. And, and give them a voice that they don't have in most adaptations. Yeah. And I think you see that a lot in games as well of like, oh, what if we make this game that's really specifically about a certain community and say, okay, like what? like lesbians like what what if there was a game that was entirely about what it means to live as a disaster lesbian and like let's follow that to its logical conclusion Ben, i know you wanted to talk a little bit about the like idea of art that has kind of no setting or or no context and what that can mean yes i think in a similar vein to universal systems which we just um shot on a lot um <laughs> There is art which sort of claims to have no setting or no context or sort of be blank, be pure. Um, And I think maybe the signal example of that is Peter Brook's 1970 Royal Shakespeare Company um, production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, in which if you haven't heard of this production, essentially it takes the play, it does a lot of aggressive doubling um, so that like the dream characters are also the real characters. And it puts it in quote, a white box. So like rather than being like in the forest or whatever, like they're they're just, the set set was like three white walls that they were in. And a lot of the costumes were like circus-like costumes. So then it basically takes something with like kind of a specific setting and kind of a specific magic to it and strips all of that out, particularly the way that it had usually been done, um, which Peter Brook himself called, quote, bad tradition. And what his thought about it was, was that would allow the text to feel new to the actors and the actors to actually perform it in a way that was watchable. And people people ate this shit up and it essentially ruined theater for the next forever. Um, Even though it was a pretty good idea and it worked very well because then everyone started fucking doing this shit Um, where it's like, well, I'll just do my play on no set and they'll just do the text. And it's like, well, that's not really what he was specifically trying to do. But also there is this idea and this is this idea is also embodied in um what the CIA was doing a lot uh during the Cold War which was uh specifically funding and promoting a specific kind of modern art which was non-representative art so like Jackson Pollock was funded by the CIA and the CIA like used money to make shit like that more popular i.e. art that does not have any relation to political context, contemporary contexts, uh, really anything. It's just sort of representative of, of nothing. Um, Mark Rothko as well. And this was politically a specific move to counter the opposite kind of art, which was socialist realism, which itself was like politically conscious art that sort of sets itself in the present or in history with a way to talk about how like, I mean, in that case, like how socialism is good. Um, but that it, it, at the same time, it's like you think about this art that has like no setting, no context, uh, like that is its own thing, quote unquote. And it still sits in opposition to things with settings and is intentionally trying to bring them down. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think that's the good point of like 
always a useful question to ask is when something's like this this thing is universal or it has you know no setting no context is like okay but why (laughs) right because that's not actually very interesting and i think that's harder to do in some ways i think you're right ben that you know the the peter brooks production actually was a very specific setting it was Um, yes and, and people who followed in that quote unquote tradition sort of missed the missed the point um but i also think it's surprisingly hard to do in theater um compared to say abstract art like visual art just because it's like i don't even really know i'm not sure what the closest thing would look like instead what we tend to do in theater is we tend to take things that are very specific and then be like oh but this is universal so we don't you know people are like death of a salesman is universal it's like well no that's actually about like a very specific <laughs> yeah like what are you, what are you what are you leaving out by claiming this is universal like who are you not accounting for in making this claim and whatever you strip away from it what are you unable to strip away and that is usually something that is very specific to that piece um like i mean in in college i saw a very good death of a salesman um where avery brooks uh a black actor played willie loman and it, the characters were sort of situated as like part of a like black slash jewish neighborhood um because you can't make everyone in that play black it doesn't quite make sense so they like made some of the characters jewish which actually worked great but at the same time it like still is death of a salesman which is about like a class phenomenon that a certain class of white people were experiencing and so they had to add quite a lot to it not script wise but a lot of context to make it work for a black man in the time that play is set it's very good i'm sorry you couldn't see it Go to <laughs> it does sound very good I've seen many bad productions of Death of a Salesman that tried to do something that is not what that play is attempting to do. Um, But that's neither here nor there. Um, To sort of break down a little bit further, um, I'm just going to talk a little bit about what we mean when we talk about adaptation in specifically a theatrical context. Um, I'm drawing from Linda Hutchins' book, A Theory of Adaptation. Um, She talks about adaptation both as a product. So like when you shift a story from one medium to another medium, the actual tangible product of that shift is an adaptation or um, the product that occurs when you tell a story from another point of view or in a different context. Um, When you shift from like a real narrative to a fictionalized one, the sort of like end result of that, um, she calls an adaptation. Um, She also calls it quote, a derivation that is not derivative, a work that is second without being secondary. So sort of like, she talks a lot about them being palimpsestuate palimpsestuous, which I think is a fun word that I apparently cannot say, but just sort of like these products that are sort of haunted by the things that they are drawn from um, in a in a more overt way than we tend to, because like everything is drawn from something else in some way, um, or at least informed by like the things that we have seen and absorbed and whatever. Um, but these are like very specifically sort of calling back to that original work that they're drawing from and inviting us to sort of see that original work and how it manifests in the in the adaptation. Um, and she also talks about adaptation as a translation, which is like apparently a very hot topic um, in the translation and adaptation community, but I'm not, <laughs> that's not necessarily my bag. So I defer. Translation community, come into our DMs, please. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if I'm really part of the translation community, <laughs> but I I will say, I think the, having gone through the exercise of translation before, like, it does inevitably start to feel like you're adapting because of the like, because of the nature of language and how you can't 
there are, there's always something that will not quite translate. There are always phrases and ideas and so on that you can you can point at but can't quite capture in their full complexity. And so it does sometimes feel like, yeah, trend like publishing an English translation of a play written in Spanish, for example, even if you set it in the same time and place as the original is sort of an adaptation just of a, of a different degree than like producing a play that is set, you know, 80 years, like pr producing an adaptation of a play that's set 170 years after the original play that you based it on and changes the characters, gender and race and so on. Like it's sort of a matter of scale rather than difference. And deeply changes the relations between characters as written and makes a lot of the dialogue probably not work great. Mm -hmm. uh, the other way that she talks about adaptation is as the process. Um, so adaptation as, quote, a creative and interpretive act of appropriation or salvaging or an extended intertextual engagement with the adapted work, meaning basically like it's not only the end result, but also the work that you are doing in order to do that translation of something from one context to another or one medium to another. Um, an analog that we could sort of insert here is like the work that the players are doing to take a universal system, quote unquote, and fit it into the world that they are trying to play in would be, I think, an active adaptation. She talks a lot of, in her book about how adaptations tend to be viewed as derivative or unoriginal, but she sort of argues like, this is a specific and unique art in and of itself. And also ask the question, like if adaptations are shitty art, why are they so ubiquitous in our culture and in our media? Like why are they, why is almost everything an adaptation of something else? And why are, yeah, which begs the question of like, why are adaptations appealing? I mean, I will say in the world of capitalism, yeah, uh, part of that is just that adaptations seem like less of a gamble. If you're, if you're creating art that is in any way, going to be commercialized you know producers are much more willing to take a to put money into a project that's based on something that's already successful to a known degree than something that is completely original i think that ties into our pre-recording conversation too which i wish we had recorded because we had it was great uh, about the fucking yes. multiverse <laughs> and how like there are, you know, there is this idea of, quote unquote, the multiverse. A lot of different movies are doing it. A lot of them are Marvel movies, but a lot of them are not. And it's like, ultimately what it is, is, oh, what if I could take all of these existing properties and make money off of all of their fans at the same time is like ultimately what a lot of it comes to, where it's like, this is not even, not just an adaptation. It is like a fusion of many things that are specifically trying to make money. And like, why is it being done? It's to make money. It's not really about the art. <laughs> it's just about getting as many people into a theater as possible or, you know, into a game or buying a game or, you know, whatever. Like this is the thing that Super Smash Brothers did very well, but taken to an end that is sort of maximalist and difficult to reconcile with good example the tenets well, of good art hearts. making. Kingdom Hearts is a great example. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You want to yes. talk about multiverse that makes somehow makes sense, but also absolutely doesn't. Are you arguing that Kingdom? I was about to say, if you're arguing that Kingdom Hearts makes no, no, sense, no, no, we no. have to stop. <laughs> because we have to stop. Your, your character can go into all these universes. Like there is a lot of there are a lot of different uh -huh, rules. Yes. But if you tried to put all the planets onto one, it would be fuck all. Well, and when when Sora goes into these universes, 
these stories are adapted. The stories mm. of these Disney movies are adapted in a way that I think fans would say doesn't always work. Some things you just have to <laughs> let happen. Kingdom Hearts is one you should let happen. Um, I will say as like a, as an artist, um, I have a slightly less bleak like take on why adaptations are popular, which is that I think, and part of this is that I'm working on a production of Sarah Rules Orlando right now. And like Orlando, the novel is essentially a love letter and the work, you know, like it, it, like it's very much this labor of love that this person undertook, um, adapting her real life relationship into a book. And then that real, that book got adapted into a play, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I also think that adaptations can be an expression of love or can be an expression of deep appreciation for a thing, or, you know, I, at the very least an expression of some kind of deep, like connection or affinity you have with something, even if it is on the basis of like, oh, here is this thing that I don't like about this and let me unpack what is missing from it or what I don't like about it or why this might still be resonant to me, even though I don't see myself in it or whatever. I mean, I, I think this is often discernible in how much people are thinking or responding to like plot. Um, just because, and I, not that I, I don't have anything. Well, no, I do have some things against plot, um, <laughs> but I, I, I think that the most successful adaptations are the ones that are super cognizant of the distance and lean into that. You know, and, and the most successful adaptations, nobody actually cares if you weren't quote unquote faithful to the original because what the most successful adaptations do, I think is either offer something that's actually wholly new that complements the original or, or recaptures the like sensation or a parallel sensation of the original in a new medium. Ben's putting in the zoom chat, i.e. an Octoroon by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, which I think is a, is a great example that embraces the distance between the 2015? I don't remember. Something like that. That sounds about right. It was also done over like like multiple times over like five years. So sure. Yeah. But embraces the distance between that and Dion Boussico's like 18, whatever. Late 1800s play. Yeah. Well, and in the play multiple times says like no one knows this player fucking cares about it. Like it, it, it's it's basically a text about like, why are we doing this? Why are we adapting this? But also we like this, but also there's residence in this. And also this is about like me today, but also I'm in it. It's it's a good text, but it is a very original text that sits very, very visibly on top of something else. Well, and just, and just to say that I don't think it always has to be this is in a different medium, but I, I don't actually think successful adaptations necessarily have to be like non-commercial or even have to be like responding to it. Because in some ways, an Octoroon, an Octoroon is like an adaptation of the Octoroon, but also kind of not. It's sort of yeah. a response piece <laughs> to the original. Yeah. And, and I always think, and I didn't notice this until I was really like thinking about adaptation and then happened to watch it. But like the Lord of the Rings movies... The original ones, not the fucking Hobbit movies or any, I don't know what this Amazon thing that's going to be out soon is. The Peter but Jackson like, ones from the early 2000s. Yeah, the Peter Jackson movies from the early 2000s are very, very smart adaptations because they, if you read the books and then watch the movies, you'll realize that the movies throw out lots, obviously throw out lots of plot and bullshit that nobody cares about. And then focused on the things that movies can do well, 
like human relationships and psychology. And the movies are much more focused on like the relationships between the people as the center of the story than J.R.R. Tolkien was. But that's why they work well is because it was like, ah, this medium doesn't do the like sensation that I am reading a like epic history written in the 13th century well, and we don't really care about that. But film does do like a meaningful glance between two people where no words are shared, maybe better than J.R.R. Tolkien can do that in a book. <laughs> and I think on the other end, it's why like Clueless is a good adaptation because mm. Clueless, I mean, everyone, I think, I, I don't know anyone who doesn't really like that movie or think it's fun. Like Clueless adapts Jane Austen, Emma into a contemporary context but just like very loosely takes the story. It's like, here's the story that happens in this book. Let's do it, but in a rom-com. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a question that this opens up for me is like the relation, what relationship this implies between form and story, like to what extent is story removable from, um, from a specific form or from a specific setting and placed into something else? Like what, like, what is the relationship between those two things if we're thinking about adaptation and about, like, game systems in different settings? Can something truly be successfully setting agnostic? I mean, setting agnostic is, like, yes, things can be truly put wherever you want. But again, all the other things that go into making a game or building context are going to influence what that setting is capable of and like predetermine some rules for you so yeah you can put things anywhere but again like it's a world it's not just you're not just painting a painting there's going to have to be stuff that has to be interacted with there has to be rules for everything that comes into play so yes some restrictions may apply <laughs> right and exactly rules have to speak to the setting in a lot of ways and so like a setting agnostic game the rules kind of have to speak to everything. So you can't have things like relations based on what's going on in the setting. So like, for example, in Shadowrun, if you're playing a character who like is magic, if you're a mage, an adept, or um, a technomancer, people in the setting, the very over, I would say overly rich setting of that game, um, a lot of people really hate people, magic users. And like, there's a lot of prejudice against magic users. There are like wars between magic users and non-magic users in the setting. And like, because of that, choosing to play that kind of character puts you at risk because you are going to have like oppositional relations with certain NPCs just by being that kind of character. And this is true of other other things in that game, like being a Decker, you know, people are like from corporations aren't gonna like you because you're gonna steal their shit. But like, this is the thing is that when you are playing a character in that setting, by picking who you are and what you can do, you are automatically creating relationships and you are automatically, like the mechanics of the game, not only the the story of whatever is going to happen is going to like put things up against you, but the mechanics of the game are around like you doing that kind of war. Yeah, that that's exactly what it is, is that like setting agnostic games or universal systems are actually just offloading all of the work of that onto you, the player, in the same way that like, a piece of art or a piece of theater that is attempting to do something with no apparent setting is just offloading the interpretive work onto you, the audience, which is fine. But like a you, the game designer or you, the GM or whatever, have a lot less 
things that you can like strings that you can pull in order to make sure that everybody is like on the same page and in the same world and is making meaning from the same things. Like you lose a lot of your control over that, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it is definitely a thing. And also like your players have a ton of responsibility to bring those kinds of like rich and exciting conflicts, like you pointed out in Shadowrun to the table themselves and come up with them on their own, which, you know, if you don't, then your play experience is probably going to be less rich and exciting than if you come into a game of D&D and are like, cool, here's my connection to the world. I'm a cleric and I worship this god who, you know, whatever, whatever. Like you have and who these... has this relationship to other gods and then yeah. other clerics. And the... yeah, <laughs> like you have a you have a built in thing by virtue of just participating in the system as written that gives you something to play with, as opposed to having to come into a game of GURPS and be like, I think I want to be a spellcaster <laughs> and I have to come yeah. up with what that means. <laughs> Now, now we must invent a spell casting system. <laughs> and the GM has to figure out like, okay, so how does this, yeah, like how does the God of this cleric interact with the corporation that this hacker left? And, <laughs> and like, certainly I'm sure people who come together to play like Savage Worlds or whatever have a conversation about like what they're trying to do in advance. But it is also just like, you're, you're doing so much more legwork on your own as opposed to taking advantage of what a setting can offer to you, which is like specificity rooted in a context that everybody already understands. So you don't have to come up with a list of rules for how the world works. You can just be like, okay, we're in the West in the 19th century. So I have some like things that I've like movies that I've seen or things that I've read that can sort of inform choices that I might make in this situation or tropes that I might want to make use of as opposed to having to do everything on your own. Yeah. In addition, like advancement and leveling are often very related to the quote unquote setting of a game. And so for example, like leveling in games gives you more, let's say social power in a lot of ways, or, you know, in a lot of cases you get like money by progressing in a game. So getting more money in a, you know, like a cyberpunk game is really important because then you can buy more expensive gear, which lets you more do more. And often those games don't really have a lot of uh, stat advancement. It's about literally social class advancement because <laughs> that's what cyberpunk is about. And then also I would say that like a lot of, uh, a lot of set, a lot of relationships between players are going to be informed by setting. For example, like D and D is sort of like medieval esque setting, whatever this means. Like, you are going to, in a party, often have, like, I'm, a, like, you know, I'm a noble and I'm going on an adventure. And some other people are, like, you know, going to be, like, peasants. Some people are going to be, like, well, I was a simple blacksmith. And these are people with different relationships. Like, you know, some of them could have been each other's employees, <laughs> right? And that itself is something that the setting informs. And that's going to be different from, like, you know, if you are in a cyberpunk game where like one of you is like a former like manager at a company and one of you is like a, a hacktivist and like even those people have opinions about each other's pasts and are going to have some sort of built in conflict or at least uh, relationship. It sounds like to me, in short, we're pro possibly plugging the position that this podcast often takes, which is there's probably a game for what you want to do out there. So probably play that game and try that out <laughs> and i mean and that's and that's nothing you know if you really i i want to say if you know you really enjoy gurps or savage worlds or whatever because you like the tinkering because there's a satisfaction to be to be had in building something and i recognize that but 
yeah, I do think the to me, the sort of quest for a universal uh, system is is probably futile and and just less enriching than like Ben was just saying the specifics of playing in a setting and a world that uh, can, that can inform part of the beauty of your characters. The D and D gameplay format is there is so much possibility. So I like, I think that's what this kind of allows us to explore more. Like that's why we're attracted to it. It's that improvisational setting. It allows us to create narratives that we haven't seen or experienced before, and like just be experimental. Like fuck universality. Get out of here. Yeah, yeah. Because because that it be ability to be experimental comes so much easier if you have stuff that you're working off of as opposed to like yeah that's as opposed to as opposed to trying to reinvent the wheel every single time because i would wager the thing that you hypothetical podcast listener enjoy about fate or enjoy about gerps is not its universality quote unquote because i don't think that they're universal and you may disagree with me and that's fine but i think what you like about them is the game system and the stories that that game system lets you tell. So in fact, let's all just be honest with ourselves about what stories we want to tell and find the thing that lets us do that. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> Join us next week for another episode of our Thirsty Sword Lesbians campaign here on Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Beckus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Season 3 features contributions from Christopher Dierksen, Ben Ferber, Corey Flores, Tess Huth, Romana Isabella, Leo Mock, John John Johnson, and Dex Fott. If you'd like to help us continue exploring the intersection of theater and tabletop role-playing games, consider leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice or supporting us and getting access to our patron-only bonus content at patreon.com slash dungeonsanddramaturgs. You can find our social media and website links, including our cast bios, at the link tree in our show notes. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drometers.